I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Perhaps nowhere do we face the realities of life and death more frequently and intimately than we do within the garden. We witness a cycle of growth, dieback and rebirth on a seasonal, weekly and even daily basis. Seedlings pop up through the soil bearing their electric green hue that screams of spring. They twist and grow and branch and bloom and fruit, producing rousing scents, vibrant colours and singular patterns. The petals fall, the fruits rot, the greens turn to brown, we get death and dormancy. The passage of time, the start of a new phase in the cycle. It's oddly calming, at least that's how I think of it. You can count on this happening again and again. The only constant is ephemerality. Death, but also life, is a given. And so as we once again inch closer to a new season, to autumn, a time of abundance, growth, but also, let's face it, decay. We've decided to take a deeper look at what gardens and our beloved flora can reveal about both life and death. First up, we're chatting with Dr. Ross Cameron about how plants can save your life. We're then lifting the veil on a rather unusual profession, forensic botany, before we head to the poison garden in Annick to learn about their pernicious new addition. And finally, we're taking a second look at the life cycles of wasps and how best to coexist with them in late summer and early autumn. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Ross Cameron is a professor of environmental horticulture at the University of Sheffield. And he's been studying the impact that plants have on our well-being and health for over 20 years. This past spring, he put out a new book, How Plants Can Save Your Life. And he's joining us today to shed light on the varying effects our gardens can have on our mental and physical health, depending on the way we approach them. I wrote the book because of the research I, I do at the university, which looks at our relationships with the natural world and particularly the benefits we get from them. So in academic terms, these things are called ecosystem services, the benefits we get from nature. And I'm particularly interested on the health and well-being side associated with plants particularly. And, and that ranges from how we see them, how we visualise them, how our brain interprets that, but also more fundamental relationships, which includes things like chemicals given off from the plants 
or microbial relationships that we share with plants and soil. So I really wanted to explore the people side as well as the plant side. Why people valued plants that they couldn't eat, so all the whole aesthetic side, why were they still important to people even though there wasn't any necessarily direct material gain from them. And that became fascinating about how people saw the plant world and the natural world in general. People see the natural world, if we take gardeners for example, they kind of divide it into three groups. There's those that see plants and gardens as the first footsteps into the natural world. So they're kind of a metaphor for the bigger picture, for the environment and, and other things they're passionate about. Then other groups of people see plants as creative objects. They're almost like the media for artistic expression. They like to mould them and design them and contemplate them, and they may introduce other elements of art into their gardens and other landscapes. And then the third group tend to see plants as quite sort of materialistic. They are aesthetics that add to the house, that add to their personas in some ways. So gardens are very much an, an aspect you manipulate and you, you manage humans forcing nature in some ways. So those three sort of different levels of engagement also affect the sort of benefits we get from plants and how we view them. Those people who like to be, let's say, go with the flow of nature with plants, they're the ones that get all the relaxation. So they're enjoying the experience of being outdoors, viewing the plants, but also listening to the, the birds, seeing the butterflies. So what we'd kind of call biophilic responses, that's where we think our evolution runs hand in hand with the natural world and that we still see natural objects through a sort of evolutionary eye. So when you go into a landscape, you'll notice the trees, you'll notice the birds, you'll notice water. And it was because these things in their prehistory, as it were, were important for our survival. So there's, there's certain patterns in the landscape we have an affinity to. And these landscapes give us reassurances in some ways. Well, I think that the other group that's engaged is the people who are artistic. So we, we know that art and music and other therapies are good for our well-being. And I think those people that garden with an artistic sort of sense of direction get those benefits. So it's a kind of escapism. It's a way of being creative. Many of these type of people sort of get involved with the garden. They get absorbed by it. And it no longer becomes a chore or a, something that must be done. You can't actually keep them out of the garden. You know, they're there most of the time, deadheading plants or thinking of some new design. And I think it's that power of expression that they're interested in and that satisfaction that comes from you know, playing with nature and seeing it in a different way. So the third group, which are the people who kind of see the garden as, as an extension of the front living room. So they're the people you could almost imagine power hosing down the patio or, or almost hoovering the lawn. And they're probably the ones that get least benefit because the, sort of the drivers there are, are about sort of tidiness and they're the ones that might actually end up being slightly stressed with the garden. It's a kind of a must-do situation rather than a, a happy environment to be in. And the book very much mentions this, that you have to have what's called compatibility with the landscape. So one of the theories, attention restoration theory, suggests that you need to find this environment a comfortable one, one that you're familiar with. And if you're always seeing the garden as a bit of a challenge, as a bit of a chore, as something that needs to be done rather than you want to do, you're probably not having the right attitude to maximise the benefits. So in the book, uh, it was a balance, as you say, between trying to get quite complex theoretical ideas across and at the same time particularly inspiring new gardeners to how you would translate that into some sort of action. So a good one would be, for example, 
we know that natural features relax people. So even just viewing a picture of a natural landscape or of animals or a flight of birds or something like that, but that relationship with nature actually physiologically relaxes us. So one of the theories is the stress avoidance theory. And so things like blood pressure, heart rate reduce when you're exposed to certain natural environments or natural features. The classic fish tank in the dentist waiting room would be a good example of that, of where these natural shapes and movements relax you. And I think that translates into the garden, that you can create these restorative, relaxing places using things like a water feature. So you might have a quiet pool, or you might have sort of shaded areas with ferns and Japanese maples, for example. And you might have, towards the sun, colours that are harmonious and relaxing, such as pale pastel pinks, pale blues, purples, etc. And the, the eye responds to these subtle, cool colours by trying to sort of relax the brain. And these are very sort of chill out, quite literally sort of chill out zones. They're very quiet, contemplative, restorative environments. But it isn't always about relaxation. So we, we also know that gardens can do the opposite. They can provide what's called positive effect or, or small moments of joy. And that's the kind of the little wow factors you sometimes see. So if you see an unusual bird or an unusual plant and you think, wow, look at that, that's amazing colours. And these are often at the opposite spectrum. These are often the warm colours. So it's a bright red rose in the middle of a sort of green or blue display. Those what we call spot plants, very strong features. And these create a positive feeling. So they're an uplift to your mood. They give you a bit of an adrenaline buzz. We think that lots of those little instances during the day help maintain good mental health. So lots of little smiles, as it were, during the day can act as a sort of guard against longer term mental health problems. So there's two or three different theories as to why the natural world provides these beneficial effects. Thanks there to Ross. You can find a link to how plants can save your life in our show notes. For me, I find the act of gardening, the whole process, is a kind of what they call a flow state, where you're out of yourself and you're in a different place and time, and it's immensely relaxing and restorative and invigorating. For example, at this time of year, it's immensely rewarding, clearing away spent crops, deadheading plants, changing pots, looking at all the things I want to do next year and planning ahead and thinking about how I'm going to do it, and also looking back on the joy and indeed the benefits of all the plants that I've grown in the summer so far, with more to come. Next on the show, we're turning to the darker side of things. How the vegetation around us can help tell us the who, what, where, when and how when it comes to investigating crimes. Dr Mark Spencer is a botanist, who fell into the world of forensics about 15 years ago, and it's changed the way he sees some of our local flora. Many people have heard the word forensics, you know, using science to help understand crime, but my field of forensic botany is drawing forensic examination and plants into the world of criminalistics. So I use plants, vegetation and landscape to help police solve serious violent crime. So things like looking for missing persons, so looking at the vegetation and helping find signs of disturbance and activity for so-called cold cases, 
I also actually help police explore and understand what's happened to human remains when they've been found, for example, in a woodland or in a shallow grave, and help give them an understanding of how long they've been there. And then the, the last element I do is actually helping link suspects to crime scenes or to a victim through what's called trace evidence. So little fragments of vegetation, little pieces of wood, leaf, you name it, other pieces of environmental information which can help demonstrate the suspect was at the crime scene. So while I'm at a scene, as they're referred to, I will collect data on the plants known at the site. I'll take photographs and images of plants and build up a species list. Because if further on down the line, we end up having to search somebody's vehicle or a home, and we find some vegetation fragments, we need to have that information about what was growing at the scene to be able to link it to the suspect or their home or their car or whatever it might be. One of the things I will then do is help the police understand vegetation and landscape because as a botanist, I look at a plant or a woodland or a field and I see time, I see change, I see growth, I see seasons. Non-plants people see green blobs. They don't see an old bush or a young bush. They see green stuff. And so in many cases, what I'll be doing is say, you don't need to cut all of those bushes down to look for a shallow grave because they're 100 years old. And actually, our crime would probably happen 10 years ago. Look over here because the vegetation is the right time frame. So in many cases, somebody like me can actually help save police a lot of money with these kind of searches. So. The other element of what I do, in some respects, is some of the most rewarding for me because it is, in many ways, a, a deeply intimate experience, is actually working with the police, with the crime scene managers and the other forensic specialists to help recover somebody's remains. And botany can actually play a really, really valuable part in this because, for example, if somebody's remains are found in a woodland, the police may not initially know who they are. They may not know how long they've been there. But also other things. One well, of the things about vegetation around a person is it does give you, not necessarily sometimes in policing, that central slam dunk, such as a leaf, to demonstrate that somebody committed the crime, but giving a story, not only to the police, but the family and friends. Quite often people want to know what's happened to their loved one. How did it happen? And by looking at the vegetation, you know, you can actually give a story about, you know, for example, on occasion, sadly, I'm working on suicide cases, you can see damage and activity in the vegetation that gives an indication of the distress the person was in, their mental state, what may have well happening to them in indirectly through interpretation. So I've, I've seen created burial spaces where people have created their own burial spaces using vegetation or rather somewhere to lay down and die. And so those are really important things for family and friends to learn about actually their, their loved one's last moments. So it's fair to say, you know, any gardener will know that the world of plants is massively diverse. And when you step into the forensic environment to look at a crime scene, it becomes incredibly complicated. We have 300 or so thousand wild plant species of plant on the planet. Several thousand are growing in the landscape in Britain and Ireland. So in any place, there could be, you know, a few hundred plant species interacting potentially with your crime scene. In most cases, it's usually 20 or 30 species near the person's remains. Every time, frankly, it's different. And this is why having an understanding of the background of the ecology is incredibly important and the identity.
But it's fair to say, you know, my pet plant in many ways and the species I use most often, um, people think pet plants, we have pet plants in all sorts of different ways. Um, in the world of forensics, for me, it's the bramble because brambles, you know, widespread plants in the British landscape. Again, incredibly diverse and extraordinary. People think, oh, bramble's a bramble. We have several, two or 300 species of bramble in Britain and Ireland. If you're into brambles, you are a batologist. I'm not that um, assiduous in my studying of them, but brambles have a tendency to grow, often as not in places where people's remains are found. And the way they grow physically encapsulates that person's body into the landscape because the brambles grow over them. They tie them in, in many ways. And once you appreciate that brambles have actually got, despite their outer chaos that people make them grumble about them, they actually have a very organised pattern of growth. And once you understand the pattern of growth, you can look at bramble stems and you can actually essentially count back the years. You can look at the stems and go one year, two year, three year, four year, five year, six year, seven year, eight year, nine year, ten year. And so give the police a clear understanding in a number of years how long somebody's remains have been there. And again, that can be a very satisfying and fascinating as a botanist, but actually really, really valuable information for police, particularly in the early stage of an investigation. If I can say to them, you need to look in your missing person records from eight to nine years ago, that can save them a huge amount of time in the early stages of an investigation. My relationship with forensic botany and plants has probably, I don't know, it's, it's like looking through a prism. You see plants with a slightly different colour or hue, you know, my obsession, fascination and adoration and admiration for plants is so multi-layered and has existed throughout the whole of my life. The forensics is just uh, another glint, really, because you start to think, ah, oh, I'd never really looked at that plant like that. I didn't realise it grew like that. Or why are those hairs there? Little kind of micro observations, which even though you're deeply familiar with it on one level, they can start to help you understand the situation, the perspective and what you need to do from a very different way. So even kind of apparently deeply familiar and dull plants such as the bramble actually can operate in a very different space in the world of forensic botany versus ecology or gardening. You know, the same plant has a, a different face and has a different story to tell. That was Mark Spencer. Mark wrote a book about his forensic experiences called Murder Most Florid, Inside the Mind of a Forensic Botanist. You can find a link in our show notes. For Mark, plant matter is often a clue that unlocks the truth about something violent or tragic. People do something dreadful and plants betray their secrets. But of course, plants are not always simply the innocent bystanders to human misdeeds they can be quite destructive themselves. And perhaps nowhere is that more apparent than at the poison garden at Annick in Northumberland, which is chock full of killer plants. Things like laburnum, atropa belladonna and ricinus communis. And this past spring, the poison garden welcomed a new arrival, dendrocnide moroides, something so ruinous it had to be put under lock and key. Guy Dean Smith is joining us today to give us his account of this venomous denizen of Australian rainforests, also known as the Gimpy Gimpy. So Dendrocnia marauders, or Gimpy Gimpy, is a member of the nettle family. It's a plant that can grow up to 10 metres tall, I believe, produces fruit, 
and it's absolutely covered in little silica spines. Just like a nettle, if they get under your skin, they will inject you with some of the most venomous poison that comes from a plant. Now let's be clear, this plant's not gonna kill you, but you may well wish that it did. I'm told that the pain is somewhere between having hot acid poured upon your skin while you've been electrocuted and then set on fire. And the cure, I don't think is much better because what they do is they poured hydrochloric acid onto your skin to take away the top layer and then wax strips to pull out the spines. Unless they do this quickly enough, your skin will grow over those spines and you will have the pain for years to come. There's a couple of poisons in the plant, which are gimpetides and marauders. So the marauders cause in the actual initial pain is my understanding. And when your body's had enough of this pain, it will turn it off. But the gimpetides keep turning it back on, which is why it's so excruciating. I know for a fact that there's been stories in Australia whereby horses have been stung by the plant they've been known to charge off in such a fast pace, come to a cliff and they've literally just jumped off the cliff. So Gimpy Gimpy comes from the Southern Hemisphere. It grows in Indonesia, Malaysia and parts of Australia. And it was named in Australia by the Gubbi Gubbi tribe and it grows in tropical climates. It doesn't like being below 18 Celsius. So to grow it in this country is a little bit tricky. So we acquired the plant, I think it was May. We was in contact with a gentleman who lives in Oxford and he'd grown it from seed. And he'd uh, had a problem with keeping it at home, as you can imagine, not the safest thing in your own house. And he uh, wanted to give it to us and we were happy to accept it. So we put the Gimpy Gimpy in a glass case and the glass case has its own irrigation system and that means that nobody has to go in there to water it and nobody wants to because the trouble with these little silica spines is they can come off the plant and blow around like dust but they're still venomous so this is something we've had to be very careful with and we've done our risk assessments and we've made sure that we put in an area that keeps it safe to both our staff and the public so the rest of the poison garden, we have plants that are a little more suited to our climate. We have things like the yew tree, which is the most poisonous tree in the UK. And we also have the laburnum tree, which is the second most poisonous. But we do grow more exotic plants that tend to grow in warmer climates, like the Brugmansia, also known as angel's trumpet, that has hallucinogenic effects, and also we grow drug plants because the whole reason for the Poison Garden is that we have a drugs education programme for children. If we made the garden into a herb garden and we spoke about medicine, we found that we can lose the kids' attention. But you tell them the plants can kill them, they're fascinated. And this is how we get our drugs messages across without preaching. Well, I think the Gimpy Gimpy is such a nice addition to the Poison Garden because it really does illustrate the dark side of plants, just how poisonous they can really be. And to have something from the other side of the world growing here in Northumberland, well that's, that's quite a surprise for many of our guests as well.
Nature always finds a way, doesn't it? Life finds a way. Thanks, Dean. You can visit Annick Gardens using a link in our show notes. And now for the final story of the day, we're shifting from plant life to that of animals. Dr Syrian Sumner was on the podcast in June to fill us in on what exactly wasps were up to in our gardens at that time of year. And now she's back with the second instalment of her mini-series on the life cycles of wasps. She's giving us an unfiltered look at exactly why wasps may be particularly bothersome at the moment and what you can do about it. I think frenzied is a really good word to describe it. And the frenzy comes not from the wasps, it comes from us. <laughs> we tend to get a bit frantic and frenzied when we meet the wasps at our picnics at the end of August. And the end of August is exactly the time when they start to come and bother us at our beer gardens, in our picnics. And this is also the time when people suddenly realise they have a really big wasp nest at the bottom of their garden or in their attic. And the first thing they do is to pick up the phone to get the pest controllers in to get rid of it. So my plea to you as gardeners is please don't do this. You've lived with that nest for months. It's been there since the beginning of April probably. And those wasps have been doing you a really good service in your garden as your pest controllers and your pollinators. So they'll be visiting a wide diversity of flowers transporting pollen from flower to flower in exactly the same way as bees do. The reason why they're becoming a little bit annoying at this time of year is because this time of year marks a shift in what the workers are doing. So those workers only live for two or three weeks. But towards the end of the summer, new workers are still being produced by the colony. And they still have a role. There are still larvae in the nest that need feeding. But once the larvae have all pupated, there's much less foraging that needs to be done. And so there are still thousands of workers in the colony and they're effectively furloughed from the colony. They no longer have as much work to do as they did earlier on in the summer. And this means that they're no longer hunting as much. Now, you don't tend to notice when wasps are hunting prey because they're in amongst the undergrowth. You really wouldn't notice if they've caught a caterpillar in your garden. But what you do notice is that when they're looking for sugar, because they'll happily come and find sugar from your plate. And at the end of the summer, they've switched from primarily being hunters of protein to being hunters of sugar. Now remember that these adult workers are not carnivores. They hunt prey, but they feed it to the larvae. The adults still need sugar in order to sustain themselves. And with fewer larvae in the colony, they are not getting as much of that sugary nutrition from the larvae as they were earlier on in the summer. And they would normally go to flowers to get sugar. But actually, your barbecue, your sugary drinks, your jam sandwich is just as good a form of sugar as a flower is. And that's why wasps tend to bother us a little bit more at the end of August. But there are ways of dealing with these wasps. If wasps come and bother you in the summer at your picnic, just sit still and watch what that wasp wants. Think about giving her a small offering. <laughs> it might sound really peculiar, but I guarantee it works. And once you've worked out what the wasp wants, she will leave you alone. Um, the main thing is that you don't want to be flailing your arms around or shouting at the wasp. Because by flailing your arms around and shouting, you're actually mimicking the yellow jacket's main predator in the UK, which is a badger. 
Now, badgers will dig up colonies of the yellow jacket and they have very thick hide, so they're really not bothered by the stings. Now, if you imagine a badger digging up this underground nest, they are digging away at the soil, so they're flailing their limbs around, much like you at your picnic, and they're also breathing heavily, which is carbon dioxide coming into the nest which is what you're doing when you shout at the wasps. So the poor wasps, if you start throwing your arms around and shouting at them, you are simply behaving like a badger and it's no surprise that they might sting you because they have evolved to respond in that way to those cues to defend their colony. So my top tip to you is at your picnics, don't behave like a badger. It's only for a few weeks of the year that they might be troublesome. And if we can just give the wasps the space that they need to survive till the end of their colony cycle, then we will have a healthy population of natural pest controllers the next year. Thanks to Syrian. Syrian has a delightful book called Endless Forms, Why We Should Love Wasps, out in paperback. Well, that's about it for today. Before you go, I wanted to share what I'm getting up to in my garden this week. It's time for summer pruning, shortening those whippy wisteria shoots and also shortening back the apples and pears. This is also the time of year of caterpillars. Caterpillars, of course, turn into moths and butterflies, so spare them if you can. One caterpillar that's particularly noisome is called the box tree caterpillar, and in various places around the country, it's still spreading and stripping the foliage from box trees. Although you can spray them three times in the summer with insecticide, no one really wants to be doing that, and I'm afraid that in the long run, replacement is probably going to be called for. Putting in something like Evergreen Euonymus, for example, that's a very popular choice to replace box trees. As ever at this season, dead head and feed containers. I like to take any bare ground that I've got and sow some cover crops of things like clover to improve the soil ready for next year. And I'll also sow some onions and some spring cabbage and a bit of lettuce and spinach too, but I won't do that until next week. So although it's possibly my favourite time of the year, when you're absorbing all the fruits of your vast labours for the last few months, there's still a few things to do. And finally, I wanted to remind you all that we have an RHS podcast email address. It's simply podcast at rhs.org.uk where you can send your reactions to stories as well as ideas for what you'd like to hear more of on the show. Once again, that's podcast at rhs.org.uk. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. 
And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.